Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs chapter 13. We'll be looking at we'll be looking at three verses tonight. We'll begin in verse 13 and read through verse 15. He who despises the word will be destroyed, but he who fears the commandment will be rewarded. The law of the wise is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. Good understanding gains favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. Now, here we have a series of Proverbs that have a common theme to them. Each verse tells us uh, of good things for those that follow God's word and bad things for those that don't. I believe this is the most basic and the most common theme in all the book of Proverbs, that very basic thing it, it's uh, it, throughout the scriptures. Uh, it is thematic uh, that sin is bad for us and righteousness is good for us. We, we see it throughout the scriptures. Adam and Eve had it good when they were obedient, uh, but when they, when they brought sin into the world, they brought evil and a curse upon the world ever since. We see the lesson in Cain and Abel. We see it in Noah and the rest of the world at his time. We see it in Moses and Pharaoh, David and Saul, Jeremiah and the false prophets. Um, and uh, repetitiously, we see it throughout by example and precepts throughout the entire Bible. Obedience is good. Sin is bad. If we can just convince ourselves of that, we'll be gone a long ways in the Christian life. It can't be said too often. It can't be emphasized more boldly. Fallen human nature is such that it'll never accept God's lordship over it. We always have to continually bring the flesh into submission. There's always one more reason why we think sinning is not bad, or not too, not too bad anyway, and why righteousness is not good, or at least it's not good in this particular situation. Isn't that the way the devil it comes at us, right? It's uh, situational ethics. And situational ethics is simply this. It's letting the situation dictate the ethics for that situation and not letting God's word dictate our ethics. Because in every situation, the devil always puts before us an option that's more convenient than obeying God's word. Uh, doing Doing it some other way then God's way will often seem more convenient or safer or more pleasant. You've all experienced this. Uh, uh, doing, uh, you know, when we let the situation determine the best action or the best inaction, then we can never have a clear code of conduct. All things become relative. They're relative to the situation that we're, it's, at, it's at hand and it's relative to our own desires. We become gods, determining for ourselves the ethic of the moment. And, and, and then you end up having what we actually have in this society, and that is we have as many gods as there are people. And everyone has their own firm opinion about what ought to be done in any particular situation. And that's the, the ethic of the day, really. It's pragmatism. But that, but that is not walking by faith. We must walk by faith. We must obey God, even when it doesn't look like obedience is going to get us the result that we really wish that we had. Verse 13 
says, he who despises the word will be destroyed. Now, here's a prophetic word for our society in general. This ought, to, this ought to cause us to fear for our nation. There have always been those who despise God's word in every generation. But in our nation, this time, it's never been more popular to despise the word of God and the ways of God than it is now. We see it all around us. God's moral code of conduct, which is clearly given with no ambiguity, is flagrantly violated and despised. You know, not many decades, not very many decades ago, it was considered a shame for a man and a woman to live together unmarried. And now it's considered just normal, isn't it? Um, and it has no social stigma to it, basically, at all, except in the church. And this amounts to despising God's moral precepts in, in, in our nation. God, God hasn't changed his standards. Hebrews 13.4 still says marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And what is shocking, really shocking, is how many professed believers in Christ do just as the world does, living in sin with no regard to how God looks at it and actually thinking that their prayers are being heard. And they, they sit among God's people and they pretend to worship, thinking that God accepts their worship. But a kindergarten knowledge of the Bible makes it abundantly clear that God does not hear the prayers of those who are living in sin. He does not have fellowship with sin. There's only one prayer for the person living in sin that God will hear. And that's the sinner's prayer. God, forgive me. You know, the, the prayer the prayer of repentance, that is the only prayer he's going to listen to. That's the only fellowship that we can count on if we're living in sin. We have to we have to repent. But we have people think that they're they're fine Christians. I mean they'll even say, Well, they they subscribe to the sixteen eighty nine confession of faith. That doesn't that doesn't make a person uh right with God, does it? But but they, but it's amazing how people uh, with fairly sound theological understanding think that they can just live in sin with impunity. First Corinthians six nine and ten says, "Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God?" I mean that's about as clear as it gets, isn't it? But then he goes on. He describes it. He says, "Do not be deceived." Evidently, they had this problem to some extent in the first century, right? Do not be deceived, he says, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And then verse 11 makes it even more clear. It says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And notice that it says, do not be deceived. And that's because so many really are deceived about these things. It's amazing. Um, they're living those kind of lifestyles. And, and the problem is that there are many Bible teachers that are telling them that they'll nevertheless enter the kingdom of God. I use this passage right here talking to some uh, some Christian, and I, I really believe is probably a Christian. He was a Christian teacher. And uh, 
I, I, I gave him that passage, and he just explained around. He said, well, it doesn't mean they're, they're not saved. It just means that, well, they're not going to really partake uh, of the better parts of the kingdom or however he said it. It has something to do with not partaking in the, the kingdom, you know, the, uh, the literal kingdom on the earth or something. How could it be? How could it be even any more clear? They shall not enter the kingdom of God. It's you know. It's a, uh, uh, but 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 even people try to twist the scriptures to get around what it's actually saying. And uh, and it says, and even the, even verse eleven where it says, "But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus." You see, he says, not only are you sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus, and that's why you don't live that way anymore. And so it's as clear as, as it can be. He's talking about salvation. So they twist the plain word of God. And we see it often. And uh, it, 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 fornicators are now someone with a sexual addiction. Everything's an addiction nowadays. Drunkards are now those with a disease called alcoholism or alcohol addiction or drug addiction. But they still tell them they're going to heaven. As long as they prayed the sinner's prayer sometime in their history. Homosexuals are those that have a different sexual identity. And on and on. And whatever God says, they have a plausible reason why they can live the way they want to live under God's blessing. And, they, and that's, the, that's the blasphemous part. They live the way they do, it, they do, and they think they can do it under God's blessing. And there are a lot of people that have a rude awakening coming. They're despisers of the word. And our text tonight says that destruction awaits them. And Jesus says so too. In Matthew 7, you know the passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Notice the indictment. The indictment is you who practice lawlessness. And so um, and so there's many in our day that name the name of Christ, but their lifestyle is a lifestyle of lawlessness. George Lawson says this. He says it was an evidence that Esau despised his birthright when he sold it for a morsel of meat. And men show a contempt for the word when they disregard its precepts to gain some advantage and some indulgence of the flesh. A tree may be sound at the heart, and yet have its branches broken by a strong blast. But a tree must be rotten, which is broken with a gale of wind. In like manner, a strong temptation may prevail against a sound and lively Christian. But he is not sound who falls before every temptation. He's going to say, yes, Christians, we're not sinlessly perfect. Yeah, we can sin. We can even, even sin greatly. But God's going to bring you to repentance and you're not going to live that way. You're not going to be living in sin. Uh, uh, if, you're, if you're a Christian, he's going to call you away from that. Another, another thing that I'll mention, you know, the world may despise God's word, but let's not us ever despise it. Uh, don't let that hinder you from using God's word as you minister, as you, as you uh, uh, minister to others around you and as you... Uh, 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 partake of uh, of uh, in the society, uh, you know when it's appropriate and and uh, the word that you know fits the occasion, let it loose. Use it. Use the word of God. Show people that you don't despise it. 
uh, you're not ashamed of it because the Word of God is always the Word of God in every generation. And as Geo Pitney used to love to say, the Word of God does the work of God. And don't ever forget that. It's the Word of God that does the work of God. I was meditating on Isaiah 55.10 sometime this last week or so, and and I was just thinking about it. And just just listen to, to this as I read it. As the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. And I was thinking about that, and I was uh, thinking about that in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the light of thinking about my apple tree. I have an apple tree right now that's... Uh, uh, it's just really blossoming apples. Lori and I put up, put up over two dozen quarts of applesauce here a couple of weeks ago with the help of some of our grandchildren. And uh, and that, I mean, I'm just thinking about the wonder of that. This thing was planted in the dirt, and all there is down there is dirt <laughs> and and water, and them roots are bringing up Something from that dirt and water, and that tree is transforming that into an apple, a really, really good-tasting apple. I mean, they're really sweet apples. And I thought, well, isn't that amazing? God's, um, God sends his rain, waters the earth, and out comes you know, apples and tomatoes and you know, the, 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 the green stuff the cows eat, and, and that's even better. You know, and, uh, and uh, you know, all these good things come from the rain that God puts on the earth. And, and it's, it's, it's really a, a wonder how God transforms all everything into food for us, right? But the Word of God does the same thing. The Word of God, soaked into our souls, produces within us uh, something even better spiritually. In fact, just, just uh, Tuesday night, I was talking to one of my grandsons that came out to help me out with something, and he hung around and wanted to talk with me for a while. He just wanted to talk about spiritual things, and and we were talking about what God had done in his life and and his salvation and, and all of that, and he wanted to tell me about a particular experience that he had just experienced and how God had led him through some deep water but humbled him in the process and all that. And anyway, I was thinking to myself, there you go. The Word of God producing in my grandson something beautiful. Something beautiful. And just three years ago, he would come to me and try to tell me he was a Christian, and I'd say, no, you're not a Christian. He'd say, well, why do you say that? I'd say, because you're a liar. And he, we were talking about that Tuesday night. He said, I remember when you used to tell me, you're not a Christian, you're a liar. Liars aren't Christians. And He used to make me so mad, but he said, you know, I'm glad that you... You didn't tell me that I was a Christian because I wasn't. So anyway, but I mean, isn't that true? Isn't it amazing what God does in the souls and the lives of people? Isn't it amazing what he's done in your life? It's just the word of God came down and it just, it it produced something in you you wouldn't expect. I mean, I mean, I, you know, I couldn't, with all my might and all my skill, I couldn't take dirt and water and make an apple out of it. I don't care what I did, right? You know? <laughs> God, and, and with my word, if I if I treat you to my word here tonight, 
I can't expect anything out of that either. But the wonder of being a preacher is it's not the word of the preacher that does the word. The work is the word of God. And you trust God that he's going to use his word to do things in the lives of people. And I see all kinds of people in here. Like I mentioned Sunday, I see you know kids and young people that used to be in my Saturday class and my Sunday classes and and I, I see what God has done in your lives, and I and, it, and I I'm thrilled by it. I think, wow, that's that's more amazing than that apple. What God does in our lives, it's a wonder. So, um, uh, you know, uh, the reason that the enemies of God have not destroyed the church in every generation uh, since since Christ is because the Word of God is still powerful. The Word of God cannot cannot be made weak. <laughs> the Word of God is still doing the work of God in every generation. Uh, they cannot defeat the Word of God. And I like that hymn that says, Human counsels come to naught, that shall stand which God hath wrought. So, though the world despises the Word, let's not do so. Let's boldly declare it and confidently water the world with the Word. It will accomplish God's purposes. It doesn't become weak because men despise it. Those who despise it, they do so to their own shame and their own confusion. But uh, let's not us despise it. But it says then, the rest of the Proverbs says, but he who fears the commandment will be rewarded. Charles Bridges says this. He says, God, as a God of holiness, will not be trifled with. But he goes on to say, as a God of grace, none serve him for naught. The heart can never be right till it fears the commandment above every earthly consideration. And then he's speaking of a child of God, and and he says, um, when a child of God hears God's commandment, he says, this he fears more than an angel from heaven, more than if an angel from heaven were standing in his way with a flaming sword. This says brings its own reward. See, we, we, we regard the word of God with such reverence that we don't want to transgress it as clearly as if there was an angel standing right in front of there saying, no, you can't go here. It's the Word of God. That's, that's, our, that's, that's, that's our guide, the Word of God. Uh, and uh, Psalm 119, 60, 161 says this, says, My heart stands in awe of your Word. You know, as you think about God's Word, do, do you ever, are you ever in awe of His Word? Uh, it's 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 an awesome word. You see how opposite this is to what, to this this proverb. He who despises the word of God should be destroyed. So we should be in awe of God's word, for we can see the great things that God does by it, and and in the wisdom of it. And consider by the power of God's word, all things were created in six days. I had somebody get mad at me last night for saying that the rescue mission. He was. He was mad at me. He says, could God have created through, uh, through uh, uh, evolution? I said, well, sure he could have, but I said he didn't because his word says he didn't. He says he did it in six days. Oh, he got mad at me. Um, and then Jesus merely spoke the word and the winds and the waves obeyed his voice, didn't they? Uh, he spoke and Lazarus came forth after being dead for four days. 
You know, and Jesus will speak again. It says in John chapter 5 that all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those that have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, that's a powerful voice. And that's the word of God. So it is fitting that we should stand in awe of the word of God. And I think of Isaiah 66, too, that says, On this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Now, what better uh, reward is there than this? That God would have a special regard for you. And what it's saying there, God has a special regard for you if you are one who trembles at his word, that that stands in awe of his word. Uh, Psalm 19, in speaking of the commands and the precepts of God, uh, says this in verse 11, it says, Moreover, by them, that is the commands and precepts of God, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Great reward. Well, let's go on now to verse 14. The law of the wise is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. Now, here we have another promise about keeping God's word in the form of an analogy. It says the the law of the wise. Well, what is the law of the wise? Well, the law of the wise is the word of God. And what is it? Well, it says the law of the wise is a fountain of life. And this is repeated elsewhere throughout Scripture, as we mentioned, I believe, even Sunday. You know, Jesus, when he's talking to the Samaritan woman, uh, he told her, the water that I shall, shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. We talked about that Sunday, didn't we? So to further the analogy God uh, makes in Isaiah 55 that we just read a little bit ago, uh, the water that you know sends upon the earth, when he sends water upon the earth, he brings forth seed for the sower and bread for the eater. His word, like going forth... Um, His word that goes forth accomplishes what he intends to do with it. So his word being received by us brings forth everlasting life. As he's saying this, it becomes in him a fountain of water, bringing forth everlasting life. So speaking of this verse, uh, this one in John 4, Matthew Henry says of God's laws, he says, they will be constant springs of comfort and, and satisfaction. And as a fountain of life, sending forth streams of living water, the closer we keep to those rules, the the more effectively we secure our own peace. And then he says, secondly, there will be constant preservations from the temptations of Satan. Those that follow the dictates of this law will keep it at a distance from the snares of sin and so escape the snares of death, which those run into that forsake the law of the wise. George Lawson says this about this passage in Proverbs. He says, In this desert land through which we travel, there are innumerable snares spread for us by the great enemy of souls who wishes to entrap us for our destruction. It is by the word of God that we must keep ourselves from the snares of this destroyer. And then he mentions two examples in the life of David. He says, By the the advice of Abigail, David was preserved from bloodshed. And by the instructions of Nathan, he was delivered from a dangerous snare in which he was already entangled, unquote. You know, so he mentions these as examples in the life of of David. Abigail, of course, reminded him that it would be a sin for him to take personal vengeance. 
And of course, we know that Nathan rebuked him for his adultery and his murder. And why were the instructions of Abigail and, and Nathan effective in David? Well, it's because David feared the commandment. And to him, God's word was that fountain of life to turn him away from the snares of death. The word of God did turn him away from the snares of death. So even though David did some very bad sins, we know he did, he truly repented when he was reminded of God's law. And he turned from those sins and didn't continue in them. And so he was delivered from the snares of death. And that's what this verse is telling us, to turn one away from the snares of death. Well, verse 15, good understanding gains favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. Well, good understanding gains favor, and um, good understanding, uh, and, and, good, and, and of course, obviously, we already know, it's good understanding of what? It's good understanding of the, of the, of the ways of God, of the Word of God, and and it's the word also applied in our lives. Good understanding gives, gives favor. So he's speaking of the word of God. He's speaking of right theology, but more so. He's speaking of obedience to that right theology. That's, that's what we've considered in these previous verses, isn't it? He who fears the commandment will be rewarded. And keeping God's commands is also a, a, a fountain of life. So it says here that these practices also gain favor. And most importantly, they gain favor in the sight of God. We've already seen that uh, as we looked at Isaiah 66 too. But the way of the unfaithful, it says, is hard. The King James, uh, that's the way the King James put it. The way of the unfaithful is, is hard. Uh, or, the, or the way of transgressors is hard is the way that King James puts it. Our, our one has unfaithful. The way of the unfaithful is hard. Uh, the way of transgressors is hard, ESV has, but the way of the treacherous is their ruin. So, so this is a truth that can be seen often if we get to know what people and uh, we get to know people around us and the things that they go through. And we see it often in their lives. I see it all the time uh, with people that I deal with uh, at NAFCO and, and uh, the mission and things like that. You know, a Christian might... Through, might go through great and sore trials, and sometimes we do, don't we? Uh, and they're truly hard. But those trials will never ruin us. They don't actually ruin us. I like, I like the ESV version here that says, the way of the treacherous is their ruin. You see, the trials that God sends us, they're not our ruin, are they? They may make us weep. <laughs> they, may make us, they may make us moan, and they may make us uh, cry upon our pillows. But they're not going to ruin us. They're good for us. And um, but but the way of the transgressor is hard. The way of the unfaithful and the treacherous is their ruin. Their sin, their sins bring them uh, uh, some very compli- great complications in their lives. And, and it's amazing how complicated and troublesome uh, people's uh, lives become through the reaping of their sins. See, the chastening we go through really is mild compared to the hard things that face the, the those that sin against God and despise his word and uh, fall into God's judgment. And that even in this life, they fall into God's judgment. And then, of course, later on, it's even worse when they die. But what Jesus said 
in that great invitation in Matthew 11:28 is very accurate for us. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, there have been times in my life when I thought the burden of Christ was kind of heavy. And maybe you've had some of those times as well. But, you know, whenever you think that, you're really mistaken. Uh, When we mistakenly think that the burden that Jesus gives us is heavy, we need to consider the burden of the devil. What kind of burden does he give his followers? When people are seduced by the devil to do his will, they're tempted by his false promises of pleasure and happiness, aren't they? Does he deliver on those things? Well, those pleasures bring with them many heavy burdens which are hard to bear. They may be pleasures for a moment, but they're hard to bear in the long run. Sin brings with it a plague. And it often brings its own punishment. And in the end, of course, it brings forth death. But in the meantime, it brings forth a guilty conscience, which people often silence with much effort. But it's in the wake of broken relationships, difficult and complex financial problems sometimes. Uh, sometimes diseases, uh, but it's always under God's, their lives are always under God's curse. And even if we consider, as we considered last week, you know, when we considered wealth gained by dishonesty is, uh, uh, or vanity will be diminished, uh, so it is, as we break God's laws, we, we fall under the condemnation of those laws and the, the whole laws of, of reaping and sowing. The laws of reaping and sowing are bound into the fabric of the universe. They cannot be erased. When we sin, when we violate the word of God, we are going to suffer consequences for it. And, you know, one of the hard things for, for, for young people that go off into sin is that, is that God, those, those consequences don't come, you know, quickly, you know, to their estimation. They go out and they, and they sin and they're having a good time. They say, what's this sowing and reaping stuff? I'm having a great time. And they might go on for quite some time, and what they consider quite some time, but it always gets them sooner or later. And you just talk to a, a drug addict that's trying to get loose of his addiction and how easily he fell into it and how long he was in that addiction before he realized that he had something that he couldn't get rid of. It's, it's deceitful. Sin is deceitful. And so they, they think that they're getting away with it, and because the laws of reaping and sowing, sowing and reaping are the way they are, they don't catch on often until they're already hooked. And But it's, it's just like anything else, just like a farmer, and I've used this illustration many times, just like a farmer, he plants a seed. Wouldn't it be silly if I took my lounge chair out there after I planted a bunch of seed and just sat there and said, huh, I don't see anything. And wouldn't that be dumb? You'd say, well, I don't know. you know, you got to wait. you got to wait at least a few weeks before it's going to, pop out of the ground and, you know, it takes a little bit. Well, that's the way sowing and reaping is. We sow good things and we want instant results, don't we? I just did some really good things for God and why aren't I reaping the great results? You need to be patient, just like the farmer. But when you sow bad things, it's the same thing. They don't pop out of the ground right away. 
But they eventually get you. And that's I've seen this so often with young people. And, and, and the thing that I really, really hate to see is the hardness that comes with it. Because I remember one young person that I warned him. I said, you don't believe these things. I mean, you still, you, you mentally believe these things. He mentally believed in the gospel. He mentally believed in, in all the right doctrines. He, he believed that Jesus was, was God. He believed that he died on the cross for sinners. He believed all the, he believed Jesus rose from the dead. And I said, why aren't you a Christian? You know, why haven't you committed yourself to these things? He said, well, I figured I'm young. That's how he answered. I figured, he figured I'm young. And, um, and I've seen these young people in that very situation, five, ten years later, they don't even believe these things mentally. And I warned him of that. I said, you believe these things now. But I said, later on, if you don't repent, I said, I said uh, you may not even believe these things. You think you're going to come to Christ later on when it's more convenient, but later on you might be so hardened by sin that you won't come because you don't even believe him anymore. And that is the case. I know at least a couple of young men that are in that very case right now uh, that I ministered to when they were young. They rejected the gospel. And today uh, they have nothing to do with the things of God and they don't even believe them. And they even mock people that will believe them. And... Um, but that's the that's the that's the uh, hardening effect of sin. We need to remember that when you sin, it has a hardening effect. Not only do people uh, reap bad things from sin, but some of the worst things that they reap is the hardness of heart that it brings to them. Well, I said this: as you grow old, you're gonna have you're gonna have uh, two things. There's two different kinds of ways people grow old. They grow old and senile and bitter. Or they grow old and sweet through the gospel. And I've seen it both ways. I've seen it both ways. I remember one time I went to visit a missionary in uh, one of these uh, senior living places. I can't remember which. It was the one that uh, connected with a free church up here on, off of Alpine. can't remember the name of it. Anyway, many decades ago. And I remember going in there to visit some old people to try to, you know, just be a comfort and, a, you know, kind kindness to them and, and uh, I remember sitting down with them, and and all they could do is ask me questions about my life, and, and they were more concerned about me. And I, I, when I left there, I thought I went there to cheer them up, and they cheered me up. And I was just so impressed with these the grace and these these older people. When you see an, an old person that's been walking with the Lord for a long time, and you see the grace that has worked in their life, it's a wonder what it, what that does to them. But on the other hand, you see an old person that's rejected Christ all their life and, they're, uh, and they've steadfastly stayed away from the gospel and you see this hardness and this bitterness uh, creeping into their life and it's a horrible thing to see. And so uh, as Christians, you know, sometimes there again, we, uh, we think that uh, we make our burdens bigger than they need to be by needless worry. We do that, don't we? We fret. That's all by forgetting God. Oh, for grace to trust Him more, right? As we sang. But the way of the unfaithful, the way of the treacherous, the way of the transgressor, now that is really hard. Because there are no promises from God to comfort them. There is no ultimate victory for them awaiting for them in heaven. There, there's no relief from suffering promised to them. And even the grave is not a restful place for them for they'll be in torment in hell. 
not resting in their graves. Voltaire said this. Voltaire, that great uh, 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 infidel, said this. He said, in man is more wretchedness than in all other animals put together. Man loves life, but knows he must die. Then he said, I wish I'd never been born. Not much hope in that, right? Not much hope for the atheist. Charles Bridges says, says this. He says, wretch indeed must he be who cannot endure to commune with himself and to whose peace it is necessary that he should rid himself of every thought of God and his soul. In order to have peace, they've got to rid themselves of every thought of God and their soul. Now think of that. How would it be if the only way you could have peace was to rid yourself of every thought of God and every thought of your soul? Wouldn't that, I mean, I just, that's horrible, but that's the way it is for the unbeliever. And that would be hard. And for that, it's the thought of God that brings us peace, isn't it? Our Christians so never say, my way is hard. We may feel at times that it is, but God will always come to our aid and he will always come to our comfort. And though we might need to wait a while, but he'll always show up. He'll always be there for us. But the way of the transgressor, that is really hard. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.